In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without thus outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us and we hope you'll stick around. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is, hangry, that is, hangry, that is. I'm Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist. I'm Michael, the ex-Mormon apologist. I'm Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. Welcome back, Fireflies, to this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. This week, we're talking to Michael about an article that he wrote called The Three LDS Conversions, A Primer for the Befuddled. Michael, welcome again to the Outer Brightness Podcast, visiting again as a resident author. Thanks. Thank you very much. So tell me about the subtitle to this article, A Primer for the Befuddled. Who's the audience? The audience is going to be Christians, people who haven't engaged Latter-day Saints very much and don't really understand what they're uh, dealing with. Because I know it can be really frustrating sometimes, and this is just a way to kind of get into the LDS mindset a little bit better and, and see where they're coming from. Yeah, great. So this article was first published on Beggar's Bread. Tell us about Beggar's Bread. Beggar's Bread is a, a website run by Fred Anson. And he uh, basically just a, a place to put articles on all things having to do with Mormon studies. So there's a lot of just a lot of different guest authors that go on there and Fred's been nice enough to let me post several articles on that website. It's actually, he's actually the one that first gave me my voice. And I think I started blogging there originally because I came out of the church and I thought I'm never really going to blog because I just don't have anything to say really. You know, I came out of the church and I was like, I'm pretty late to the party. I have nothing to add, nothing to say that's going to really matter. And so he let me write a few articles and then it started picking up steam and, and I've started writing more. And eventually I got to the point where I've written my own or I created my own blog. So this, this article is now found on my blog at fromwatertowine.org. All right, great. So I thought what we do here is have you kind of read through the first section of your article and then kind of take off from there with comments and questions. Sound good? Yeah, sounds great. So I'll start reading it here. First section. There are three conversions in Mormonism, social, doctrinal, and spiritual. Doctrinal conversion is to believe that the tenets of Mormonism are true, along with the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. 
social conversion is to believe that the LDS Church is a godly institution, its leaders are inspired, and its founder, Joseph Smith, had an upright moral character. Spiritual conversion is any experience that validates a Mormon's beliefs. The most common of these is spiritual conversion. It typically occurs after reading the Book of Mormon, which challenges the reader to ask God if it's true. It promises that God will reveal the truthfulness through the power of the Holy Ghost. Rather than testing the Book of Mormon against the Bible, Latter-day Saints resort to subjective feelings and often equate a burning in the bosom to an answer from the Spirit. The exact wording in the Book of Mormon is as follows. This is in Moroni 10.4. And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. These conversions serve as a three-legged stool to keep Mormons tethered to the LDS gospel. If one leg is kicked out, they can keep going on two legs while the damaged one is repaired. Thus, in order to bring them out of the church, at least two of the three conversions must be targeted. However, Latter-day Saints are unlikely to divulge details about their spiritual conversion because those experiences are considered sacred. To them, talking about their experiences with Christians is casting their pearls before swine. That leaves the social and doctrinal conversions to target. Most Mormons either lean to the doctrinal or the social side of their faith. Rarely, if ever, do you find a Mormon who is on fire about the doctrine and the culture of the church. If they don't lean either way, they are probably less active. So I was a ward mission leader right before leaving, and it was often said that a new convert to Mormonism needed three things. A friend, which is social conversion. A calling, also social conversion. And to be nourished by the good word of God, doctrinal conversion. Of the two types of Latter-day Saints, the vast majority are socially converted cultural Mormons. They do not participate in online debates, and their testimonies are not founded on logic. I have been in several wards over the years, and typically I've only found one or two individuals per congregation that really knew their stuff. These doctrinal Mormons are, to some degree or another, outcasts in the faith. I heard a talk over the pulpit once where a man was comparing his parents, one of whom was doctrinal while the other was a cultural Mormon. He said, my father knew the Book of Mormon backward and forward. He had much of it memorized, and he could explain why each passage was important, but... My mom knew it was true. He implied that because of her blind faith, his mother was the more righteous of the two. So your framework here, Michael, kind of reminds me somewhat of a classic article by Richard D. Pohl that was published in Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. And in that article, uh, which is called What the Church Means to People Like Me, Richard Pohl posits that metaphorically there are two types of Mormons, Iron Rod Mormons and Leahona Mormons. Are either of you familiar with that article? So I only read the article today because you uh, you mentioned it to us. So I kind of I kind of skimmed over it today and and looked at it. It was pretty interesting. What about you, Matthew? No, I had never heard of that article. Okay, yeah, I I can't remember if it was in the uh, this the very first uh, episode of Dialogue, um, but it was in it was definitely in one of their very early episodes of dialogue back in the late 1960s, I believe. And um, I mean, it, it was really a lightning rod in Mormon cultural discourse. Not that I was alive then, but I, I, you know, having gone through a deconversion that, that 
included kind of a trip through that more liberal Mormon space, um, I was, I became well aware of, of how much this article meant to kind of that, that subset of, of, uh, questioning Mormons or, or post Mormons who are, uh, probably fall more on the cultural side. So I think it's kind of interesting to, to do a little interplay here between your article and, and Richard Pohl's. Um, but yeah, I mean, his was, his was, uh, really, it caught the attention of, uh, of the leadership in, in 1971 in general conference LDS apostle Harold B. Lee actually quoted from, from Richard Pohl's article without naming Richard Pohl and denounced his ideas. Um, so what he says there about the iron rod Mormon and the, and the Leahona Mormon is, is this, he says the iron rod saint does not look for questions, but for answers. And in the gospel, he finds or is confident that he can find the answer to every important question. The Leahona saint, on the other hand, is preoccupied with questions and skeptical of answers. He finds in the gospel answers to enough important questions so that he can function purposefully without answers to the rest. So what, what do you think, Michael? Leahona, Mormon, uh, Iron Rod Mormon, how, how would those kind of interplay with your, your categories in your article? Well, I have to admit that as I was skimming through the article, there were a couple of times where I thought, oh yeah, I, I fall right in line with the uh, Iron Rod Mormon. And then there were times where I was like, well, not really, because I didn't care about answers to all the little things, which he seemed to imply that they did. Um, and so I was kind of wanting maybe a little bit more of your understanding of, of what it means to be one of those two categories of Latter-day Saint before I answer that question. Yeah. I mean, definitely the, the, what came at him as criticism is that, and, and, and the way that his article is read, and it's been a while actually since I looked at it, um, so I don't remember, you know, exactly how he sets it up, but I I, I do remember how it was perceived, um, and that is that you know a, a an iron rod Mormon is someone who um, is very fastidiously watching and listening to what the brethren are saying, the LDS leadership and have high fidelity to to them and obedience to them. Whereas a Leahona Mormon is someone who questions and thinks about things and uh, maybe would even conclude at some points that they disagree with the LDS leadership. Um, he kind of describes, you know, the, the difference in the, in the, uh, in his metaphor, you know, between like in the book of Mormon, you know, the people holding fast to the iron rod, like, the scriptures and the, and the, and what the brethren are saying, you know, I, I guess I would see like a, a, an iron rod Mormon being more of a doctrinal Mormon in your, in your framework and a Leahona Mormon, which is, you know, for those who may not be aware the Leahona in the book of Mormon is, is a device that functions like a compass and leads um, some characters across the ocean to land in America. And so, um, you know, a Leahona Mormon would be someone who uh, follows the spirit and follows their conscience more so than holding fast to exactly what the church is saying or what the scripture says. Yeah. So I was actually looking through the article and I think at first when I was reading it, I was like, man, there are a lot of similarities to a, an iron rod Mormon to a doctrinal Mormon, because you just talked about him what, thinking that the answers are all there somewhere and you can find a definitive answer. I think that is, something that a doctrinal Mormon would think. But then I also found similarities with the Leahona because I was definitely in that category where I came to a point where I had a little bit of distrust 
towards the leaders of the church. And so I was like, okay, but as long as it's in the standard works, it's true. And so there was a little bit of a tension because it was like, sometimes they can speak as men. And so it's, it's only doctrine when it's being spoken by the spirit. And so I think a doctrinal Mormon really has no issue with that. So I do think that a doctrinal or social Mormon could actually fall on either of those sides. So I don't think it's a complete, a complete parallel here, but I do think that there are some, some aspects that are definitely going to be right on. So I, so I actually, actually think that a social Mormon is far more likely to be the one that just holds to everything that the leaders say and Mm. refuses to deviate. Okay. Okay. But Mm. you, is a social, so hmm. let me, let me come up, let me uh, frame my question in my mind. Matthew, did you have something? Yeah, um, I did, and I lost it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, because uh, I rereading your article, I was under the under the assumption that you could be. I don't know. I, <clears throat> I was just thinking back to my experience, and I felt like I was a doctrinal Mormon, but I also felt like part of the doctrine was the fact that you have to accept that the leaders are inspired. Do you know what I mean? That you, that you do. Yeah. Part and parcel. And I think it really depends on how far along you are in your progression, too. And you throw a faith crisis in there, and things start to change a little bit. So, yes, for 90 and, – and here's the thing, too. I was a social Mormon at first, and I was I was I converted to being a doctrinal Mormon on my mission because my beliefs were challenged by evangelical Christians, and I started wanting to find the answers. And I actually changed course, and I started to to think like a doctrinal Mormon at that point. Whereas before, I'd just been going to church out of culture, and because my friends were there, and there were pretty girls, and et cetera, et cetera. And so I changed my mind. And I did view everything that the prophet said as being scripture, as being 100% true. And then what changed that was later on finding some of the quotes that the the leaders had said that I I knew were demonstrably false. You know, especially a lot of the things that like Brigham Young said about blacks and and all that. And even polygamy, you know, saying that if, if you are not in a polygamous marriage, you will not enter the celestial kingdom. I'm like, well, that's obviously not true. And so then you start, you start to say like, okay, well, it's only true as long as they were speaking as prophets. But then it's like, you know, you get into the complication of how do you know if they were actually speaking as prophets or not? And so then it's like, okay, well, we know that I'm going to use the standard works and you have to have something to, to judge it by. And so that's what I use to judge it by. So I think that a doctrinal Mormon can get to a point where they are skeptical of some things that the leaders say, but they're still going to hold them in very high regard. And they're going to say, as long as it doesn't contradict something that I know is true through another source, then I'm okay with what they're saying. Yeah, that's interesting. I've, I've, I've kind of noticed that the, how do I want to say this? So the fidelity to the leadership on the part of doctrinal Mormons, because I, I would I would argue that what the, the the folks that we encounter on Facebook groups um, where we talk about Mormonism and, and and debate various aspects of it, um, I would argue that the majority of them are doctrinal Mormons. Would you agree with that, Michael? I a hundred percent agree with that. Everybody yeah. that we are talking to online. You can kind of tell. Sometimes there are social Mormons trickling in there, but they mm-hmm. usually are the ones that that leave 
pretty quickly and they tell us about how how horrible we are for you know why can't we just leave them alone because they're happy and they believe in jesus and they usually don't stick around for very long or if if they do it's just they're just bearing testimony or they're not really using logic to to argue a lot of them are going to say hey it's the spirit of contention i don't want anything to do with that so you know i'm going to just bear my testimony or here's a video for you to watch but they're going to stay out of the fight and so the ones that we're actually discussing theology with those are your doctrinal mormons for sure yeah i i agree and and what i find interesting about that is that like i was saying about the fidelity to the leadership and and what they say a, a lot of times seems to go out the window in the midst of discussions that you have where what a leader might have said is either uh, embarrassing or no longer considered relevant because of teachings of newer leaders, more recent leaders. Um, and so the fidelity is kind of, it's kind of in name only, right? It's, it's, it's kind of like we have this doctrinal point as Latter-day Saints that we have apostles and prophets is, is kind of the view they take. And that's important for supporting the need for the existence of the LDS faith over and over against evangelical Christianity, which does not have that type of an authority structure. Um, and that authority structure is viewed to be biblical. And so it's important to have them. But when when you kind of get down to brass tacks in a, in a discussion, they're willing to throw out what the leaders say pretty easily. Yeah. And, and here's, I'm just going to throw this bombshell on you. But this is actually a spot where they align far more with the Liahona Mormons, where it's like the, the Liahona just points you in the general direction, mm -hmm. but then you've got some leeway, you know, once you get there. And and you're right, doctrinal Mormons are far more likely to be like, you know what, like, I don't like what they said, it must not be true. Because, you know, these other sources that I consider to be uh, true are going against that, you know, and, and that's something where I would even find something another leader said, and I'd be like, well, this other prophet contradicted him. So there you go. That's all I need mm -hmm. is one other leader saying something different. Now, what happens with the cultural Mormons is it's actually more of a cultural thing in the church to have this unquestioning fidelity to the leaders. And so when you're a social Mormon, it's a lot harder to squirm under that. And if somebody's pointing out a, a quote that one of the past leaders have said, they're far more likely to get offended by it than a doctrinal Mormon is. Hmm. And just say, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I think you kind of talk a little bit about that later on in your article, right? Where it's kind of like, if one of these, if you think about three legs on a, t on a chair, if one of them is being attacked, they'll kind of resort to one of the other two or both of the other two to kind of hold it up. To an extent, yes. Uh, but here, here's the thing, like a lot of doctrinal Mormons are really, and I will talk about this later in the article too, but a lot of doctrinal Mormons are suspicious of the culture and vice versa. The cultural Mormons, they're not suspicious of the doctrine, but they're a little suspicious of people that are just really into the doctrine and, and uh, they're, not, uh, they're not there for the spiritual reasons so much. And so I was trying to think where I was going with that. What did you just ask me, Matthew? Or what, what did you just say? before well i think i remember reading how you said that if one of the three legs is they feel like it's under attack or they feel like their that position is weakening then they kind of resort to one of the other two legs so that so that it remains upright so so just speaking from a of doctrinal mormon perspective i was not likely to use the social leg to defend myself at all because i already 
was wary of that leg myself because I was already going through stuff at church because I didn't fit in culturally all the time. Like I didn't have a bunch of kids. And so I just was kind of an outcast at church. And there's just, you know, a lot of things like, you know, I didn't have an education. And so I was kind of looked down on for that. So I wasn't the perfect Mormon. And it's like, okay, the culture, I'd look at the culture and I'd say the culture is kind of rotten in a lot of ways because, you know, when, when somebody doesn't take the sacrament, instead of saying like, oh, we need to pray for this person, it's like, what did they do? You know? And so, so I kind of saw like the culture is not perfect, but the doctrine is So you never would have seen me defend myself or use the social leg at all. In fact, I would have thrown that leg under the bus any day and been like, you can't, you can't get me with this because I agree with you that it's not perfect. That's interesting. That's interesting. So someone who might say the church is perfect, but the people aren't, where would they fall? That sounds like a doctrinal Mormon to me. Like they probably wouldn't put it that way because that's actually uh, kind of like a, it's tailored to be said by, by a social Mormon because the social Mormon is still going to say like, Hey, you know, the, the church is perfect. In fact, I might have to change my answer right now and just say that's a social Mormon thing. If they say the doctrine is, is perfect, the doctrine is what matters. Then you're looking at a doctrinal Mormon. But if they say the church is perfect, uh, but the people aren't, then they're probably going to be a, a social Mormon who acknowledges that there's a couple of people that are rotten apples right. in the church. But, but most of us are great. You know, 95% of us are fantastic. And, you know, you can't judge us because of brother so-and-so. Like, yeah, he's a jerk, but he's like the only person in the whole church that's that way. <laughs> How about somebody who would say that the church isn't perfect, but the people are? <laughs> Has anybody ever said that before? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, on page 45 of your oh, my uh, biblical uh, defense of Mormonism. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. And so begins the blackmail. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Except that I didn't actually say that, but I don't have a copy, so I can't prove you wrong, can I? No, no, no. Um, I do want to dig into one more thing uh, in section one of your article before we kind of go on to talking about section two. Um, you say, rarely if ever do you find a Mormon who is on fire about the doctrine and the culture of the church. Why do you think that? Why do you think that is? For me, it's just been a lot of experience, but usually one of those conversions is going to take hold so strongly that, you know, it's kind of, it kind of goes with that scripture in Matthew, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will despise, hold, despise the one and hold to the other. So it's kind of like, you can't, you just can't you know, functionally love both of those conversions as much. Like there's going to be one of them that's just going to be more meaningful for you. That's more of just an observation that I've made. Um, in retrospect, I, I guess I could see there'd be a place where you might actually find a couple of people that are like that, that, that love the social aspect and the doctrinal. But I think even with them, they're going to have a favored leg that it's going to hurt them more if you attack that leg. So, Section two of your article, you kind of go into talking about your conversions into Mormonism. Um, you summarized a little bit already, but can you can you just summarize again for us? And then I want to ask Matthew a question. Yeah, sure. So the first conversion that happened for me was when I was about 15 years old. You know, I'd been dragged to church by my parents every single Sunday. Didn't really want to be there. But about that time, I finally started to make friends. 
uh, started going to a lot of the youth activities and, and they were a lot of fun. And so that was really my spiritual conversion, just feeling like I had a family at church, that it was somewhere I wanted to be. I was going to uh, enjoy going there and, and seeing my people. And then I, I talked about this in my story episode, but going to, uh, especially for youth, the week-long retreat. And then uh, on the Thursday night, they showed us the video about Christ, and I really felt like the Spirit was uh, revealing to me that He was my Savior. And it was just an overwhelming experience for me. I remember just crying for hours into the night, and that was definitely the moment of my spiritual conversion. That said, the spiritual conversion continued to to, uh, I think it's the strongest conversion for most Latter-day Saints. It continued to deepen as I went on my mission and had more experiences, for sure. Um, and then I talked about the doctrinal conversion already, how I was definitely more of a social Mormon. But then I had to defend my faith against uh, evangelical Christians. And so started to read the Bible, and I started to find some answers. And to me, being able to find these answers was really invigorating. It was exciting. It was like a, a treasure hunt. And I'm like, I really like this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep doing this. And so it kind of became kind of became my thing at that point. So that's how I was converted into the church. So social conversion initially, uh, spiritual conversion via EF, uh, EFY. And then uh, as you went on your mission, transitioning kind of more to a, a doctrinal conversion. And, and would you say that you landed ultimately as as a doctrinally converted Mormon and stayed there through when you left? Yeah, I was definitely more doctrinal um, than anything. <clears throat> there were there were spiritual experiences that formed the bedrock of my belief. But when it came to my discussions, I didn't really pull out the spiritual experiences because I was afraid that somebody was going to say, well, you know, you can't trust your feelings or what if you just ate some, you know, too much Taco Bell the day before and it was just heartburn or I don't know. I just didn't really want somebody downplaying my experiences. So I would talk about the doctrinal aspects a hundred percent of the time with mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. online. I think Paul, you can attest too that you never really saw me talking about anything else besides just doctrine. So that's definitely where I landed. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely attest to that. Do you, yeah. Cause I, you know, I, I was at the time that we first started interacting, I was not, uh, not latter, not a latter day saint anymore. And, um, I would say that, well, maybe I'll get into that later. Let me, let me, let me bring Matthew in here. Cause, um, we don't just want to hear your voice and my voice this episode. So Matthew, if you were to kind of write your section two to Michael's article, uh, which of those would you say was strongest for you in your attachment to the LDS faith? Was it all three at different times as, as it was for, for Michael, or was it more one over the other predominantly? So I was thinking about this, and um, so initially I wasn't really into the social aspect of the church. You know, I was baptized at 10, but it was kind of more, I felt like it was the right thing to do, and I felt like it was pleasing my parents, and, you know, I felt like it was just right, even though I didn't really believe I don't, I don't, I'm not really sure how strong I really believed back then when I was 10, but you know, I felt like it was the right thing to do and I wanted to please God. So I, I didn't really connect to the social aspect. So I kind of became an active around high school. Um, and then I was kind of convicted by my sin and I felt like I needed 
some kind of redemption, some kind of uh, reconciliation, or some kind of uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? The other theological term. Uh, eh, it's, it's it's escaping me. But basically, I wanted atonement for my sins, you know, for for, and I just felt like a bad person, so I wanted to become a better person. But I think what ultimately converted me to Mormonism was was a doctrinal conversion, just because I had mentioned that one of the things that I read while I was trying to study this out and think it out logically was I thought, well, you know. If, if Christianity is true, then based on the story that's included in the um, marvelous work in a wonder, how, it, how they describe a Roman Catholic priest came to Salt Lake City and he said, you Mormons are a bunch of ignoramuses and, you know, you don't realize the strength of your position. Either the Roman Catholic Church is true or the Latter-day Saint Church is true because it, we are the only ones that have a valid claim to the priesthood. So I kind of clung on to that and it kind of made sense to me logically that you needed some kind of firm connection to Christ through laying out of hands and authority. So I think I would say that probably doctrinally at first. And then um, I, I, it was, it's difficult to describe because I feel like I doctrinally agreed. I logic, you know, my, I rationally agreed with the doctrines of the church, but I told myself, well, I want to have a spiritual conversion first before I go on a mission, because I don't want to go out there and say, well, I don't really, I've never really felt the spirit tell me it's true. I don't really, I've never really felt or had a spiritual conversion. So I really sought that before my mission. So then I would say probably that the spiritual conversion came next. And I'm not sure if I, if what I, I really experienced would qualify as a social conversion. Do you know what I mean? Because I think, I mean, I believe that the prophets and apostles were inspired, but that was based on the doctrine. Do you know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel like first that all oh, these are great men and what they're saying is inspiring and, you know, it's something that I've needed my whole life. It was more like I understood and believed the doctrine. And I, and so because doctrinally it says that, you know, Christ's church is led by apostles and prophets. And Latter-day Saints believe that that's a continuing office in the church, that that's why they're inspired leaders and I should listen to them. So do you know what I mean? I'm not quite sure if that really qualifies as a social conversion. You know, that completely resonates with me. Matthew and I wouldn't I wouldn't really count that as a social conversion and I don't think everybody has a social conversion I do think the church pushes people to have that social conversion as quickly as possible and, and just the way that they treat new converts where suddenly they're the most popular person in the ward and everybody's you know trying to you know get to know them and you know they just treat them like they're a rock star and I think that that social conversion is really pushed when somebody's first coming to the church so that's I think that's typically the first one, but I think you know people like like me, you know, I kind of came into that doctrinal position too because I wasn't having a lot of spiritual experiences and I wasn't having a lot of uh, social you know connections at church either, and so it's like well I need to have some kind of connection, and so doctrinal was just the easiest place for for me to go. Thanks, Matthew. Um, I would say that during my upbringing I was probably. I probably had a social conversion, though I I didn't really feel a, a great fidelity to uh, local church activity. But in terms of growing up within uh, the the Mormon culture in Utah, I would say I probably had a social conversion the way you the way you define it here, Michael. That you know, I believed that the LDS Church was a godly institution. Its leaders are inspired, and its founder Joseph Smith had an upright moral character. That was all part of what I what I believed. Um, I had questions, of course. I remember, you know, one of my friends, uh, we were sitting together in, in psychology class in, in high school, and he was kind of grilling me about why I, why I believed in Mormonism. He kind of thought it was silly. And, you know, I, I kind of gave him the, the, uh, the answer that um, it's, uh, I kind of viewed it as, you know, 
what the LDS church was teaching me, uh, how to live and uh, treat others was good. And therefore, even if it wasn't true, it was, I, I, I imagined that, you know, at the end of my life, if I was, if I was judged by God, I would be judged as somebody who had done good within their life because, you know, the church was teaching me to do good things. And so um, definitely was not doctrinally converted uh, in my adolescence and in high school. As I prepared for my mission, um, even then, I, I wouldn't say that I was doctrinally converted. I, I would say I probably never really was doctrinally converted to the LDS church. I, I wanted to believe all of the tenets of, of the LDS church and probably did, but um, I, I wouldn't say I was ever a doctrinal Mormon in the way that, that you kind of have described doctrinal Mormons. So spiritual conversion came as, as kind of I went into my mission um, and had some experiences on my mission, uh, came home from my mission, very, very much uh, committed to uh, my social conversion uh, to the LDS faith. And, um, then, you know, when, when I started to have people ask me questions that kind of knocked at the, at that leg, right. That, you know, Joseph Smith was, had an upright moral character. Uh, the leaders are inspired when, when that leg was gone, it was gone for me. And I didn't, I didn't retreat to one of the other legs. Um, I just kind of stuck around as someone who wasn't fully believing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what I would say about my experience. So would you say you were kind of like me in that your, your allegiance to the leadership was based on the doctrine. So once, once you disagreed with the doctrine, then it's kind of like the allegiance to the leadership went with it. Hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Or, or the other side of it was your allegiance to the leaders based on, on character and the good that the church did and the fruits of the leaders. Yes. That. Michael. Okay. And that's sure. social. Yep. Yeah. So like when, when I was in the MTC, Matthew, to your point, I, you know, I read a lot of Talmadge and, um, you know, from a, from a logical perspective, reading through his works and uh, LeGrand Richards, you know, marvelous work in a wonder um, the doctrine. I, I think I viewed it as mostly coherent from within, from within that context. Um, but I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't say that I was a doctrinal, I had a doctrinal conversion. I think of somebody like with a doctrinal conversion as like a Bruce R. McConkie, right? And though he, his works were important to me and I used it, I used his works as a reference all throughout my mission. Um, I don't feel like I was, I was ever truly a doctrinal Mormon in that way. I, I didn't have, um, I didn't have that, that level of, and then few people do have that level, you know, that Bruce R. McConkie level of, of doctrinal attention, but um, I didn't even have the, you know, want to be uh, Bill in my ward who who wanted to be Bruce R. McConkie level of attention to doctrine. You know, it, um, I think I was very much a social social convert to the LDS Church, um, and and so when when questions arise about the righteousness of the the founder, righteousness of the leaders. Uh, then that leg was gone. And, and like I said, I just kind of stuck around. I didn't, I didn't retreat to any of the others, any of the other legs. Oh, okay. Gotcha. That makes yeah, sense. That's really, really interesting. I was actually, for some reason, what you were talking about, Paul, it, it, I just remembered this article that I actually wrote a response to a couple of years back, but I just found it 
on it's thirdhour.org and it's called 21 reasons it doesn't matter if the church is true this is written by a member so he, he lists off all these reasons one it takes care of their own two does good in the community three does good around the world you know one of the reasons is it has highly efficient volunteerism responds well to criticism it, it just you know has moral courage and i'm like i can just tell by looking at this article that this is a social mormon mm-hmm. who wrote this because as a as somebody who was doctrinal, I would have looked at that title and just said, this is ridiculous. There's no reason to stay in the church if it's not true. The reason to be in the church is because it's true. Nothing else matters. But to a social Mormon, a lot of those other things really do matter. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. And and that's a good point. Um, I, I did want the church to be true. And and I went on my mission in hopes that it would be, that it was true. And I came home from my mission believing that it was true. Um but my conversion after after uh, after there were cracks in 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 my ability to believe that it was true towards the end of my mission and after my mission, um, my conversion was social. That's that's where I was able to land. Is is kind of what you were describing from that article, right? Is the church is a good it's a good institution, and and it's led to good things for my family and for me. And so you know I stuck around. Um, but yeah, the doctrine doctrinal thing doctrinal conversion i don't think was ever there for me more of just a hope i think mm, that's interesting did you already address this michael already or maybe maybe my brain's just fried but where did you come up with this you know this trichotomous this this three-way view of of conversions was it just something you just came up with or did something kind of inspire you with this idea i really do not remember how this came to me i think it just it just came to me one day and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it made perfect sense. You know, it's just kind of looking back at my life and the construction of how I how I came into Mormonism, how I came out of it, and even the three things that they say that a convert needs. Like I'm looking, I'm thinking about it right now. They say you need a friend, so that's your social conversion. You need to be socially converted. You need a calling. That's that's kind of a spiritual conversion too, because you think about it like, oh, like you need to believe that God is personally like calling you to do this job in the church and that there's a spiritual connection. And then third, you need to be, f- be fed with the word of God is what they say. So you need that, that doctrinal conversion as well. So there's definitely a push for all three of those things, just with that statement. And I think having been a ward mission leader right before I left, that, that quote was just fresh in my mind. And so just thinking about that and why some Latter-day Saints are so eager to debate online and why others are so against it. And I think that's how it all came together for me. Okay. Yeah. I think it's interesting the way you, the way you define a social conversion here, because I think a lot of people, when they think about that um, would think more along the lines of, of the culture uh, from your use of, of the term social. Uh, But I I think you're right in your definition here, because so for me, even even when I started to have major doubts about the truth claims of of the founding of Mormonism, right? Whether or not the first vision actually took place, whether or not uh, the Book of Mormon was produced in the way that the that Joseph Smith said it was, or were there other other things that came into play? When when the history really started to come into play and in, in causing me doubts, um, even then I had this fidelity to Joseph Smith as a person, right? I was able to look at his story and and see someone who was a seeker and 
relate to that myself as a seeker trying to find the truth. And so even, even when I had major doubts doctrinally and, and about the truth claims of Mormonism, um, there was still like this fidelity to Joseph Smith as, as this uh, person that should be important to my life. And um, I think that that does come from the culture, but um, I just thought that that was interesting because I, when I first read your article, uh, you know, a while ago when you first published it, I wouldn't have, I, I kind of thought a social conversion uh, was different than what you d- described here. But when I think about how it actually plays out and played out in, in my life, I think you're right on, you're spot on here. Yeah. And it's interesting to look at too, because if I had a problem with the, with Joseph Smith, for instance, you know, if I heard somebody say something about him, I would think about the doctrine and I would say, okay, well, if he wasn't inspired of God, how did he come up with the Godhead, which seems to fit so beautifully in all of scripture? You know, you can't tell me that this guy was not inspired by God. And so I would look at the doctrine and I would bolster him with that. Yeah. And see that, that line of thinking just never crossed my mind. That's interesting. I kind of always figured that most Latter-day Saints had a little bit of each, you know? And and I think they do. I think a lot of Latter-day Saints do have some of each, you know, like Paul said, he still had a hope that the doctrine was true, you know? So it's not that it wasn't there at all. He just, he just leaned one way a little bit further. And, and for me, I still, I still wanted to believe that the church was a, was a good organization as well, that it was holy, that the people were living upright, holy lives. But I couldn't, I couldn't really believe that all the time. And so I, I held the doctrine a lot more than the, the social beliefs. I definitely had a, a, an aspiration to be a doctrinal Mormon. I, when I came home from my mission, I, I found a website. I can't remember the name of the guy. Ask, ask Gramps. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen yeah. that. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Way back when. And he, and he had a list of uh, top 25 books that all Latter-day Saints should have or something like that related to doctrine. And it, you know, it, of those, um, I think, at, you know, I don't know how many prophets there have been in the LDS church now, but I think at the time it was at like 14 or something like that. And so 14 of the books were the collected, ri- collected writings of each of the prophets of the LDS church. And so I started to buy those books one by one by one with the intent of, you know, really studying them, pouring over them and becoming a doctrinal Mormon. Uh, and I did read them and I did highlight them and study them, but I, I, I still don't think I had a doctrinal conversion. I was, I was still very much a social Mormon. Yeah. And, and I do think you can change between the two of them or one leg could be stronger at certain parts of your life. But I think that most people kind of just stay wherever the one is the strongest. And I don't think they change. It's great stuff. Yeah. I feel like we could talk about this all night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So section three, Michael gets into more of his uh, kind of deconversion his, his his conversions out of Mormonism, I think is how you termed it, Michael. Can you summarize that section for us? Yeah. So this is a little bit harder to summarize, but <clears throat> um, so yeah, it's starting in about 2015, uh, God was waging war on all three of my conversions. So I decided to study grace to become a more effective weapon. And I was starting to have trouble with my doctrinal conversion because I was reading about, you know, heaven. I'm like, okay, well, there's there's like three levels of heaven. There's six definitions of salvation. So I'm like, I was having a hard time fitting the Book of Mormon and the Bible into 
the Mormon, uh, I guess the Mormon, the Mormon kingdoms of heaven and everything and, and making it all fit really nicely. And, and as a doctrinal Mormon, I really wanted it to fit perfectly. So when it didn't, it was really frustrating for me. And then I was jealous of my Christian friends because they all kind of had the same answer. And looking around at other Latter-day Saints, they did not have the same answer for how grace worked. There were a lot of differences in opinion. Um, and at the same time that that was going on, uh, the church came out with a policy that children of gay parents couldn't be baptized. And I had a really big problem with that because uh, I believe that that went against the second article of faith. Men will... Uh, be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. So I couldn't understand why we wouldn't baptize somebody for something their their parents had done or were doing. And so I was kind of having issues with, with both of those. And then, uh, you know, what's crazy, though, is I also learned about imputed righteousness. And, you know, I talked about that a lot in my story. But I came to realize that that was a doctrine that I 100% believed in. It was supported by the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and even the symbolism in the temple. And so I feel like I felt like there was a lot of signs pointing to it being true, but then I realized it didn't jive with Mormonism at all. In fact, it was probably the most anti-Mormon doctrine that I'd ever encountered. And so I ended up being forced to to leave. My spiritual conversion stayed intact after my other two fell, and it took a lot of time for that one. Um, I think it was my strongest leg, and I think that's probably the case for a lot of Latter Day Saints. Uh, but it, it couldn't survive without the other two to prop it up. And so it eventually, just with some time and some reflection and some time away from the church, um, I was able to look at those experiences and, and kind of see where the holes in them were and where they weren't really supporting the church at all. And so eventually, yeah, all three of them broke down. Sorry, guys, getting myself off mute. So, yeah, very interesting, Michael. Um, I think I think it's kind of fascinating your approach to the 2015 policy uh and it, and it struck me as interesting at the time because you and i were were friends and, and moderating evangelicals and latter-day saints together at the time and um kind of watching you go through that and thinking thinking through the way you were approaching that as different than the way i approached kind of the same issue but earlier on uh, when the whole prop 8 thing was going on in california um, as a social, socially converted Mormon, I approached it more from the perspective of, well, well, that's just wrong because we should treat people with love. And so the, the church leaders are wrong on this. And, um, you know, even, even if we, you know, even if you might have disagreements about, um, about things, I, I viewed it as, you know, you can, you can treat people with love and respect. And, um, you know, so I was, I was more of like a, that that's just kind of a wrong approach to it, and you 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 definitely thought about the 2015 policy, policy doctrinally. You know, you went to a place where I I didn't go. You know, you went to a place where hey, this this is contradicting the the LDS scriptures, and so um, I just think you know to note those kind of differences and how the different conversions kind of played out on the same topic are, is interesting. Yeah, in fact, it was it was to the point where so really social issues in the church just they were just annoyances to me. So when I, when I'd see somebody, like I remember I saw somebody get on a forum and say like, Hey, I don't have a problem with the new policy, but even if I did, I would just pray about it until I didn't anymore. And it, it, it irked me to the point where I shot back and I said, you know, if that's not a cult mindset, then I don't know what is. 
And I was just, I think it was just a, a jab at the culture of the church. You know, it's like, no, you don't just blindly accept whatever the leaders say, you know, you don't pray with the intent of like, you have to give me the answer I want. So it was kind of a, a jab at the culture. And then my family all kind of said, Hey, you can't, you have to be careful what you say online and all of that. It just irked me, but it wasn't enough to make me question the church. What finally hit a boiling point was when uh, Elder Nelson at the time uh, got on TV and, and said that it was a revelation from God because that took it from the realm of social to the realm of doctrine. And you had to really deal with it, didn't you? I really had to deal with it at that point, and it became real. And it's like, I can't dodge this. This is, uh, this is something that is now like affecting my, my conversion, my doctrinal conversion directly. Good. Matthew, any thoughts there? Yeah, when I was reading that part of your experience, I was, I was wondering, is it just because, hmm, I, I was wondering, as a Latter-day Saint, if, you know, if, if I was, I was already questioning my, at that point. So when I saw that, it was just kind of like further pushing me out. But I was thinking about, I was trying to imagine myself in Michael's position. So I was curious, Michael, you know, why did you not go the route of thinking, well, you know, they're just fallible men. They claimed it was revelation, but it wasn't really revelation. Maybe they're just mistaken. You know, I'm, I'm just curious, could you... Maybe expand a little bit on why you kind of, that that was such a huge blow to your you know to your faith. Well, I think what it was is that he said because I wanted to go that route. Believe me, I wanted to sweep it under the rug and say he's just speaking as a man. This is just a policy. But when he said that all fifteen of them had had prayed about it and agreed unanimously that this was a revelation from God, that's when I said, okay they've all unanimously received this this incorrect revelation because you know the article of faith the scriptures and the holy spirit are all telling me that this is wrong and so how can they be receiving something all of them like not one of them is receiving revelation as well as i am right now so why do i even need them or you know how can i trust them and it was such a a battle for me because I wanted to believe that they were divinely inspired, you know? And then I ended up having this nightmare where I was giving a presentation at church and somebody asked me if the prophet could supersede scripture. And I said, no, you know, we have to use scripture to test what the prophets say because they could be speaking like men. And they all stood up and started calling me a heretic, you know? And so that's just, it was really weighing on my mind, but yeah, it came to the point where I felt like I couldn't trust them anymore at all hmm. yeah that's interesting I, I, I was i was thinking how i would have reacted if i were still you know a, t, a true blue mormon when that when that announcement came i'm not sure how i would have reacted to it but um so your question was if i kind of felt like i was a an iron rod mormon is that your question paul yeah i wanted to to kind of go back to to kind of some interplay between richard pole's article and michael's mm -hmm. um so one of the hallmarks of an iron iron rod Mormon is unquestioning fidelity to the current LDS leaders, uh, somewhat like Michael would describe a social Mormon. Um, and he, he experienced some tension there as he's described. Do you, do you think that you were an ever, were you, that you were ever were an iron rod Mormon in that regard, Matthew? Kind of hard to really describe. I think I kind of mentioned earlier that it was be, that I, my fidelity to the leaders was, not like a spiritual one in the sense of like, you know, even if I find problems with the doctrine or this and that, I'll still follow the leaders. Like my, I felt like my fidelity to them was because of my doctrinal understanding of the church and their authority is derived from Christ. Mm -hmm. And since I felt that I had a spiritual conversion to the book of Mormon, 
that's why I should owe my allegiance to them. So I'm, I'm guessing maybe not because, yeah, like I said, I, I wouldn't do or die for the LDS leadership if I felt like they were doing something contrary to to what had been taught before, what was taught in scripture, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I don't know. Is that, answer, is that kind of touching on what you were hoping? Yeah, yeah. For sure. Okay. And you know what a thought that came to me too is I really I really agree. I was kind of both though, because I was more of a Leahona Mormon when it came to like if they said something that I felt like was wrong, I would not have followed in those those footsteps. But when it came to, you know, the doctrinal belief that they held the keys of the priesthood and my priesthood was you know, they were necessary for me to have priesthood and use it, then absolutely, I was 100%, I had 100% fidelity to the leader of the leaders of the church in that regard, but not necessarily in what they said. But in the office, yes. Mm, that is interesting. I think, I think I've kind of held a similar idea because, and, and, and throughout this discussion, I've been thinking about some of my Roman Catholic friends that I've talked to and, and the, the things that a lot of Roman Catholic you know, traditional Roman Catholics are having to deal with Pope Francis because he said a lot of things that they really don't agree with. And so they're trying to wrestle with, okay, do I, do I, you know, is my allegiance to the church? Is it to the doctrines or is it to the leader? You know? So it's kind of a lot of things that we, we had struggled with. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. Like, I think you can't deny, I mean, whether, you know, I think most, there are a lot of Latter-day Saints I knew that, that would outright admit that Brigham Young was a racist. Right. But whether, you know, a lot of them would say, well, everybody was racist back then or et cetera, et cetera. But they couldn't deny that he was a prophet because so many people's priesthood ordination, their lines go through Brigham Young, right? So they couldn't just toss him completely under the bus. They had to give some respect to him, even if they didn't agree necessarily with everything he taught. So they, so they, so we, they still had to hold respect for the office, even if they didn't always respect the person or what they taught. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. So, Michael, you mentioned earlier today that you thought you might want to add a fourth conversion. What What is that, and what What are your thoughts there? Well, so when I wrote the article, I really was just saying there's two two kinds of Mormons. Um, I originally I said that there's doctrinal and, and then there's social. So I did say that there's a spiritual conversion, but I I had assumed at the time that it was always going to get covered up by either doctrine or or the social aspects of the church, and that the member would definitely have one of those things strong enough to kind of shield their spiritual conversion. But I, I was actually just talking about a third type, and that's a spiritual Mormon. You know, the more I've thought about it, I think that there are, are people who do not hide their spiritual conversion, and that is kind of what they lead with all the time. I don't think there's as many of them because uh, the uh, the spiritual conversion, you know, if, if you've played chess, you know, I kind of compare it to the king in a chess game where if you lose the king, you lose. It's game over at that point. And so most Latter-day Saints, I think, instinctively will try to shield that with the other pieces on the board. Um, but I think that there is a spiritual Mormon who's just had you know so many experiences that that is the one and only bedrock to their faith. And I, there's a lot of people like that on, on my mom's side of the family, actually. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. So someone who leads with that, do you think that they have not been challenged in a way that would maybe make them retreat and hide in behind some of the other legs? I think someone like that has either not been challenged or will not listen to a challenge. Hmm. 
Um, there's actually a quote from uh, Lynn Reidenauer that I used to like when I was LDS. Um, but he basically, he said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's so good. You know, but now looking back, I'm like, that's totally bogus. <laughs> But, you know, I think that's, they they kind of view that as like a lot of these um, spiritual conversions, you view it as it's coming from the highest possible source. So a lot of Latter-day Saints will think that no argument on earth, no scientific evidence can stand against this because, because God is, he knows everything. He's smarter than we are. And as much as it might look like it's false to my finite human eyes, because of the experiences I've had and because God has told me that it's true, it must be true no matter what. And so I think people like that might have either not been challenged or they're just so confident in these experiences that they are unafraid to, to lead with that because you, they feel like you can't really counter it. Um, the problem with that is, and I don't address it in this, this article, but you know, you, you have somebody like me who came out of the church and there were some spiritual experiences when I left. And so I can share those. And, and the problem is that my spiritual experiences can't beat out somebody else's and it turns into a stalemate. But for them, a stalemate is actually a loss. Interesting. Interesting. Do you think that a person who leads with their spiritual conversion uh, do you think maybe they haven't experienced the other two conversions that you talk about? I think they could have. I just think that this one is has just for whatever reason been so strong in their lives that the other two don't really matter as much to mm. them. Mm. Okay, interesting. It is interesting. Once you once you mention that, it is interesting because I, I go into the group that most most uh, Christians don't go in, <laughs> the LDS and non LDS group, which is basically like unmoderated. So you can post whatever you want, pretty much. And um, yeah, you'll see a lot of people where it's like you try to connect with them on a logical level. And it's like it doesn't even compute. You know, it's like I'm speaking English and they're speaking Russian in a sense. It's like we're speaking totally different languages. So it's like you bring up a, a you know a proposed contradiction in the doctrine or something that the leadership says that, that doesn't seem right. And it's like it, it doesn't phase them at all. They're like, well, you know, what does that mean? You know, I don't I really care about that. And it And it's it's almost like we're, we're planning an episode in the future about kind of the more spiritual aspects of, of in the church, you know, and kind of more Christian, you know, mysticism in a sense that like we're becoming more, you know, having a spiritual connection and union with God. And, and I feel like that's kind of what they feel. They feel like they have such a union, you know, spiritually or, you know, experientially that they're like, well, your contradiction doesn't make sense. You know, if, you know, if God told me it's true, it's true. So, you know, I'm not going to question it. And it's almost like anything you throw at them doesn't, it doesn't matter at all. So yeah. Kinda, with your describing that, it kind of all, it kind of all makes sense. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's kind of like that, you know, those fights we used to have like at recess in elementary school where it's like, well, like, you know, I can do this better than you. Well, I can do it like times two, like times 10 times infinity. It's like, Oh, I can't beat you now, except you still like, go infinity plus 10 or whatever. <laughs> That's how it feels like talking to, to Latter-day Saints sometimes online. But you, you actually did a great lead into to my final section. And, and kind of the reason that I wrote this article in the first place is I think there's value for, for Christians who are trying to witness to Latter-day Saints to 
to kind of realize as fast as they can what kind of Mormon you're talking to, because it does matter. Because depending on the kind of Mormon that you're discussing with, you're going to use different arguments. So for instance, and I'll, I'll talk about this in the final section of my article, but social problems would not have worked on me at all. I didn't care. So for for certain Latter-day Saints, you just it, the first step is finding out what kind of conversion they have. And you can usually tell based on how they are interacting, what kind of things they say. A spiritual con- converted Mormon, or a spiritual Mormon, probably the easiest, because they're the ones saying stuff like you just said, Matthew, like, well, I, you know, I know what I know. I know what God has told me. Or, you know, starting with a testimony first instead of last, like that's going to be a spiritual conversion for sure. Yeah, good. So that's... uh that's probably sort of a good segue into the final section. And for our listeners, um, we, we just kind of summarized the two middle sections because Michael's talked so extensively about his story, both on the podcast and in our, in our last week's episode. So um, that said, getting to the last section of, of your article, uh, kicking out the legs of conversion, let's, let's get on to that. Okay. Spiritual conversion is the toughest to target since Mormons are so protective of it. Ex-Mormons might have a shot at it, though, by talking about the spiritual experiences they had while active and why they failed the test of time. Most Christians will need to go after social and doctrinal conversion instead. First, find out what kind of Mormon you're talking to. Does she believe her leader's words are always inspired? Does she blur the lines between culture and doctrine? Is she LDS because of the great programs and family values? Does she think people leave the church because they intellectualize their way out? If so, she's probably a cultural Mormon. Does he believe the prophets and apostles sometimes speak as men? Is he wary of the culture but protective of the beliefs? Does his testimony of the LDS scriptures have some basis in logic? Does he think people leave the church over cultural issues? If so, he's probably a doctrinal Mormon. Conventional wisdom says to strike where the Mormon is weak, but that may not be the right strategy. Since my social conversion was weak, I doubled down on the doctrine to overcompensate. I overlooked the prophet's mistakes because they were men. When faced with Joseph Smith's misdeeds, it never dented my view that he was a prophet. I just thought he was abusing authority God had actually given him. All the social problems in the world could not have relinquished my grip on the Mormon church. God attacked my doctrinal conversion first. That made me vulnerable to social problems in the church and set the stage for the avalanche to come. So if you're talking to doctrinal Mormons, talk about doctrinal issues first, like contradictions between LDS scriptures and the Bible. If you're witnessing to cultural Mormons, talk primarily about social problems, like Joseph Smith's polyandry. I would caution against coming off too aggressive with Latter-day Saints. Above all else, be a friend first. Mormons are wary of Christians who constantly attack their beliefs. We don't have to tell our LDS friends they're in a cult every time we see them. They already know what we think, I promise. Bold, fiery preaching may erode their doctrinal conversion, but if it is not coming from a relationship of trust, it will simultaneously bolster their social conversion. Navigating someone past the three conversions is ultimately the work of God, and it's a long, drawn-out process. Sometimes all we can do is plant seeds, pray for the LDS, and love them. Mormons are unlikely to ever choose Christianity if all they remember from us is attack, attack, attack. 
I am forever grateful to the many Christians who befriended me while I was LDS, who respected me despite my beliefs, who saw past my religion and saw me, who prayed for me, who built me up, who let the light of Jesus shine through them, and who treated me like a brother before I was one. I don't know where I'd be without them. Yeah, I really like what you've done there in, in writing to your intended audience of Christians who are, are wanting to be effective in, in their witness to Latter-day Saints. Um, I think that several of the articles, not just this one that you've written, are, are kind of aimed at, at giving that type of advice to those who have never been Mormon. And I think you've done a really good job of, of helping provide some insights uh, to them. And, 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 you know, that's borne out in the comments that you've received in response to this article and others. So, um, but I think what, what's interesting, and, and I was thinking about it earlier, is, you know, you talk about you talked about knowing, getting to know pretty quickly the type of Mormon that you're that you're talking with. When you and I first met, um, I didn't know that you were so heavily, uh, you know, doctrinally converted. Uh, I learned it pretty quickly, but my experience—it just wasn't my experience. And so, when I initially tried to have conversations with you, I, I kind of went the route of trying to kick out a social uh, leg, you know, talking about you know, doing kind of what you were talking about earlier with, you know, talking about my own spiritual experiences and, and trying to get you to question in that way. And um, it was just interesting that I, I didn't really get anywhere until I um, kind of took off that, that social Mormon hat and put on the hat of um, someone who was going through a Christian seminary at the time and really studying, you know, biblical doctrine and started to have doctrinal conversations with you that, you know, our, our relationship kind of blossomed from that point, I would say. And, and we, you know, we, we were able to talk more on the same level, I think, than, than early on. Cause I was <laughs> early on, I was just kind of trying to hammer away at, you know, the book of Mormon's not true historically. It doesn't, doesn't add up with archeology span and those types of arguments. And they just didn't land at all with you because like you said, you didn't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? You were, you were thinking doctrine, not history, not social. And so, yeah, it was interesting to think about that. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And even me, like even now I have a really hard time if I'm talking to a, like I can talk to a doctrinal Mormon all day long and I'm, I feel right in my element. It's what I was used to when I was in the church. But if I'm talking to a, a social Mormon, I feel lost a lot of times. I'm just like, I don't, I don't know what to do in this conversation. <laughs> and it's funny because we, we had the elders over a while back and I actually befriended one of them. His name's Elder Johnston. Um, and so he would write his family saying about all the things that he'd been learning. He was a total doctrinal Mormon. And so me and him hit it off and he would write his family and they would just be like, well, you know, you really need to like focus more on, on the missionary work and, and avoid, you know, looking too deeply into the doctrine. And so I was there to kind of console him and be like, look, I totally get it. A lot of people don't appreciate this kind of thing. And actually he went home and I got to talk to him recently. And, and it was just funny because that, that bond is still there. And I'm like, you know, it's kind of funny, but um, you probably relate more to me because you're a doctrinal Mormon. And, and I was too, than you do to a lot of people who are in the church with you right now. Interesting. Matthew thoughts on this last section. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel pretty much the same way as Michael does. Like, like I already described how it's difficult for me to know how to connect. I mean, like I said, I think at some point I did have a spiritual conversion. So I know what it's like to have this very personal experience 
to feel like, you know, that God had actually spoken to you and that, you know, to tell you whatever that, you know, the Book of Mormon's true, whatever. But it's like trying to witness to them is very difficult. You know, like I can I can sympathize with them and kind of like Michael, like you said, you could sympathize with that missionary because you both connected at that level. But it's like going from sympathy to trying to invite them to think about things differently or critically. You know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm that way too. Like I go back to the, the doctrinal view of, you know, I, I try to go back to showing, well, the scriptures, the Bible says that God is this, this the, the gospel is this. And the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, they say something else, you know, so I try to show doctrinally. And when people don't connect with that, I'm left kind of wondering, okay, well, what now? Do I just pray for them and move on? Or it's very, it's very interesting. But I I really liked how you said, and it might have been in the first section, but you said, typically, when you're thinking about a plan of attack, you attack their weakest point, but instead you said to, to kind of address the strongest point. And I think that was something that I really thought was interesting, because it seems counterintuitive. But once you explained it, and you kind of think about it, it makes sense because yeah, the arguments for the other aspects, the social or spiritual, they wouldn't really have done anything to me. You know, I was already at the point where I was like in my, in at a certain point in my deconversion, I was like, well, you know, maybe the apostles aren't inspired, but I think, you know, doctrinally the church is true. We have these priesthood keys and maybe even some of my spiritual experiences were manufactured, but I still feel like this is the most logical, you know, thing. So, um, so yeah, um, I think I think that's a really good idea to to kind of try to address them, but also to do it in love, and and that's something that I recognize that I need to work on, because sometimes when you're witnessing to Latter Day Saints, you just get so bogged down in seeing the same arguments over and over again. Like I see constantly accusations that Christians are modalists, you know, that we believe that the Father is the same person as the Son is the same person as the Holy Spirit, and it's like it, you just get run down over time trying to address the same arguments over and over again and they just keep popping back up like a whack-a-mole you know so and and it, and it it wears you down emotionally i think you know where it's like sometimes i'm less patient with people i'm less gracious than i should be and so i have to step back and think okay i've really got to i've got to remember why am i doing this why am i witnessing to latter latter day saints is it because i think i'm going to get a higher level of heaven or something well obviously no um, is it because I want to win internet arguments? You know, do I want to put another check mark on the wall? Well, no. At the end of the day, I don't care about that. So why am I getting worked up or why am I getting frustrated? You know, if they don't accept it, that's that's between them and God. I can't force them to change their mind. So I think we, as apologists to Latter Day Saints, we have to always keep that center. You know, we have to always keep remind ourselves who is actually performing the conversion work here. It's not us. It's Christ. And why are we doing it? Is it to glorify Christ or is it to glorify ourselves? And so, yeah, the some of the greatest conversations I've had with Latter-day Saints are those I had some kind of friendly conversation with. You know, a lot of times we won't connect at all. And, you know, they laugh at my comments and then it goes nowhere. But then there are ones that are really thoughtful and they'll consider my arguments and I try to consider theirs. And I feel like even though we disagree at the end of the day, we had some kind of connection there. So... Uh, TLDR, basically, I agree with what you said, and I really, I really like the article. Um, I would probably, if I were to write it, I, would, I wouldn't have been write it. I wouldn't have been able to write it as articulately as you did. Um, so I thought you had a lot of really interesting insight there that I think a lot of Christians who witness the Latter Day Saints should read and should think about because sometimes we just say, okay, well, we've got this list of doctrines. We just show it to Latter Day Saints. We give them the Bible verses, and boom, they're going to become Christians. But it's not. It's not like that. It's a hard, it's a long, it's a slow process, like you said. Yeah, and I mean, 
a big thing to consider is that social conversion too. And even if we're talking to a doctrinal Mormon, there's still going to be that social conversion in the background, even if it's not very strong that says, Hey, if this person comes at me aggressively, um, that's not very Christ-like behavior. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of shun what they're saying a little bit. And so I think it's very important to try to connect to a Latter-day Saint, you know, in some way, I mean, just find something that you can connect with them with. And it's so much harder online because, you know, you don't feel the tone of somebody's voice and, and you could be arguing with, with multiple people at the same time on these forums. And so it is definitely far more challenging than it is in real life for somebody to recognize like that you love them and that's why you're talking to them. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So um, Ross Anderson, a, a listener and, and someone who has a, a ministry to people coming out of the LDS faith uh, called FAM, uh, Faith After Mormonism. Uh, check it out if you if you want to take a look. He, uh, he's been good about submitting to us some questions, and I'm going to hit one of his questions now, uh, and then we'll save one for the very end. Um, so he asks, could you add a fourth leg, uh, cultural conversion, which is similar to but slightly different from social conversion? What do you think about that, Michael? So for me, it, it's hard to uh to quantify it that way because when i think of culture and and the social aspect i think that they are um the same and so i actually think that's a better question for me to throw right back at you paul because you were actually socially converted so you may actually be able to see the difference better than i can from my perspective what do you think i I think there is a difference um so i talked about how i had a hope of being a doctrinal mormon but i was ultimately i was a social mormon uh, and that when my belief in the uh, leadership started to fail, that, you know, that like, like you talked about, that was my strongest leg and it was gone. And, but I stuck around. So the question becomes, why did I stick around? I stuck around for family reasons, right? I stuck around because it was comfortable. Uh, it was what I knew um, and all kinds of reasons like that, you know, desire not to step outside of the comf- my comfort zone and experience something different than what I had experienced religiously for my entire life. Um, I think all of those are cultural, but they don't go to the same points that your definition of a social conversion does. So I think it's possible for someone to be a cultural convert to Mormonism. Okay. That's really interesting because uh, you actually just brought to the forefront of my mind uh, a couple that I'm friends with and they've come to a point where they no longer believe that the church is true and they are atheist, but they are still active members. And I think they are active for the cultural reasons for family and, and, and for all of that. But they certainly do not believe that the church is a good, virtuous institution. So would you say, I mean, there's, I, I call them shadow Mormons, but would you say that that would be a cultural, a cultural Mormon? Yeah, I, I think so. So if, if they're sticking around because they think that, um, you know, ultimately the church has been good for them in their lives, it's a good culture for them to raise children in, uh, even if they don't believe the truth claims, even if they don't have high fidelity to the leaders, but they're sticking around for some of the other cultural aspects. I think, yeah, that, that, would, that would demonstrate a cultural conversion. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. See, I just hadn't thought of them as actually being Mormon. And I think that's debatable a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, I think I could see where that, that leg could come in. Um, but for ministry purposes, I just don't see what the purpose would necessarily be of going after that leg because they've already 
um, left the church, you know, in their hearts and in their minds, they, they know that it's not true. Well, it's sort of, it's sort of a pragmatist approach to Mormonism, right? It, we're sticking around because it works um, in, in a lot of ways. And we're, we're setting aside truth claims. We're setting aside uh, all of the other trappings that come with it, but we're sticking around because it works. And, um, you know, I, th- I think you've, you've alluded to it in terms of when, when you talked about how, how good the church is at organization and, and, and giving, giving people things that they need uh, in their lives. And I think you're right about that, but I think that those kinds of things lead to a cultural conversion to where, you know, even if somebody doesn't feel fidelity to the leaders or, or believe in the truth claims, they can, they can stay because it works and you can go, you can go after that leg. Um, you know, you can point out that there may be ways that it doesn't work that are harmful. Right. And it, in talking about that, you do kind of have to get into some kind of hacking away at some of the other legs that they might not care as much about. Um, but it's an approach I've taken with with cultural Mormons to say, you know, okay, let's let's talk about grace in terms of what it does for a person psychologically, right? The difference, the difference in belief, because beliefs have consequences. The difference in belief between I have to do all of these things to make myself worthy of the love of God versus he gave to the world the greatest gift that anyone could ever give uh, in terms of offering his son. Uh, in our place and offering us forgiveness, those, those beliefs, those teachings have consequences. So even if you are sticking around the LDS church because you think it works, there are subsidiary detriments that your children or you may be experiencing as a result of sticking around. I think RFM referenced that when he talked about going to church in the episode we had with him. Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess he would be a cultural Mormon, which, wouldn't you say? I'd want to ask him that. Yeah, I won't speak for him. Yeah, that'd be be an interesting question to ask him. That's interesting. You you mentioned that because I have on my desk. I haven't read through it all, but it's very interesting. The Recovering Agency by Luna Lindsay, Luna Lindsay, and um, like I'll reference it every once in a while. And I remember when I was leaving the church, a lot of it made sense. You know, kind of like the kind of like the um, some of the manipulation or some of the the mental and cultural tactics they used to to make sure people stay active in the church or to make keep them loyal and. I've never really gone that route just because I'm not very versed in that. And that's, you know, I feel like that's more like a psychology kind of area, but I could see where that would be a very useful realm or a very interesting route to go down. You know, it's just, it's very difficult because you want to show them. It's kind of like you want to, you want to help to see the victim that that you want to help them realize that they're being gaslighted, but that's very difficult to do. Right. It's kind of like when you're helping a friend who's in a very toxic relationship, who's being manipulated by their significant other to try to get their mind the right way again. You know, they've been so twisted over time, slowly and bit by bit to believe that their loved one is actually doing what's best for them kind of a thing. And you're trying to undo that. You're trying to untwist the pretzel to try to get them to see all the the damaging things that they're doing to them. And so it's, it's a very, it's like a a tiptoeing act where you would have to very carefully take each step to make sure you don't cross boundaries too far or upset them because then that, then they'll just double down on, well, this is who I am. This is, this is, this is my identity. That's kind of what Ross was talking about. People that identify with Mormonism as their identity and their people. And I, I think about when you mentioned that, it reminds me too of like cultural Catholics or cultural Jews. They're like, this is my people. We've been here for thousands of years. You know, they, they might not 
ever go to church except for maybe on Easter and Christmas, but they identify as Catholic or Jewish. Well, of course, Jews don't go to church on Christmas. You know what I mean? But you know what I mean? Right. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like with cradle Catholics, that's kind of, you know, like with, with cultural Catholics, they're, they, you attack the church at all and they just go, you know, they just get very defensive about it because that's who they are. I'm Catholic, even though they're not, you know, spiritually in line with what the church teaches, that's what they are. And so I see that with Mormonism too. Like they have this pioneer heritage, they have this history, they've got this culture, this people, they always point to times when Latter-day Saints were persecuted. And so they say, you know, I, I identify myself with this people. And even if I'm not active, even if I'm not worthy or temple worthy or whatever, that's, that's the group that I, I associate with. So I think it's, I think it's definitely um, a, could be considered a fourth leg um, just because how many times do you talk to someone and they'll say, well, my great, great, great grandpa was on the, was on the, the pioneer trail, you know, he had pulled his handcart and all that. I had no connection to that because, you know, I think my great, great grandpa was Swedish and, you know, like we, we didn't really have any pioneers in the family. So that wasn't really a factor for me, but I know it is for a lot of people. Yeah. I, I think you guys have convinced me that there should be a fourth leg. I mean, it's just not something I'd considered until Ross made that comment on my article, but I, I I actually think too that I may still have a little bit of that conversion, uh, cultural conversion, because I tend to still think of Latter Day Saints as my family, and I even wrote this in my book that I think of them as the family that I was born into, and evangelical Christianity is the family I married into. So I still view them as as being my tribe in a sense, and I think that maybe why I I felt inspired to write an article like this, where it kind of mediates between the two uh, religions. Yeah, really good discussion on that. Thanks, Ross, for the question. So, Michael, you talked earlier about uh, playground fights in elementary school. Uh, speaking of fights, you, not your article, were critiqued by an LDS blogger named Robert Boylan. While in his article, he identifies himself as a doctrinal Mormon per your framework, which I think is interesting, and I'll get into that later, he immediately turns to suggesting that you're an apostate per Hebrews 6, 4, 6, 4 to 6, and Hebrews 10, 26 to 29. And he also claims that you are a son of perdition per Doctrine and Covenants 76, 30 to 44. And finally, that you've embraced the perverse gospel of Protestantism, which he suggests is the referent of Galatians 1, 6 through 9. How do you respond to his critiques? Well, first of all, let's look at this one in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. I'm going to read those from the King James Version, because this is what he would have been referring to. It says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So the first thing I would say is that I was never made a partaker of a heavenly gift because there was no gift when it came to Mormonism. I never received anything from God unless I was obedient. The Doctrine and Covenants says that there is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven, and that if we receive any blessing from God, it is through obedience to that blessing. And so, anything that I received in Mormonism was a wage and not a gift. So, he cannot say that I was that I tasted of a heavenly gift and then fell away. Furthermore, it says that they... Uh, crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. And one of the thoughts that came to me recently is that the uh, the Romans tried to pin Christ to the cross with nails. 
And similarly, Mormons attempt to bind God through their obedience and force him to grant them salvation. And so if anybody is crucifying the Lord afresh, it is the Mormon church. And then I wanted to look at the uh, the verses in the Doctrine and Covenants. Can you remind me of that reference, Paul? Yeah, it's Doctrine and Covenants 76, 30 to 44. And while you're getting that, I just I just wanted to point out that I think it's interesting that he sets out to critique your article and goes straight to an ad hominem attack on you, claiming that you're an apostate per Hebrews, uh, that you're a son of perdition, and doesn't address anything that you said in your article, though he does mention that per your framework, he would be a doctrinal Mormon. Um, so it's, you know, he did read your article, uh, at least the, the first three <laughs> definitions in the, in the first three lines of your article. Um, but he didn't address any of the rest of it, which I think is interesting that he goes to trying to make the case that on spiritual conversion, on a spiritual conversion basis, that you would be an apostate and a, and a son of perdition. Um, but he, he says, I, I'm, I'm doctrinal. Um, it's interesting that he, I, I'd, I'd be curious to ask him about his, his spiritual conversion. Um, if he, if he has one to Mormonism or if he's strictly doctrinal. I think that would be interesting to know. Uh, maybe he could have written about it in his article, but instead he went straight ad hominem on you. Um, but yeah, you got the Doctrine and Covenants ready? Yes. So uh, let's see. It starts uh, in verse, I guess I'll start with verse 30, 31. It says, Thus saith the Lord concerning all those who know my power and have been made partakers thereof, and suffered themselves through the power of the devil to be overcome and to deny the truth and defy my power. They are they who are the sons of perdition, of whom I say that it had been better for them never to have been born. For they are vessels of wrath, doomed to suffer the wrath of God with the devil and his angels in eternity, concerning whom I have said there is no forgiveness in this world, nor in the world to come. Um, and then it goes into the uh, crucifying uh, Christ to themselves and putting him to an open shame again. I think one of the things that stuck out just kind of re rereading this was to deny the truth and defy my power. And I was, I was thinking about it. And, and if anything, like I haven't denied the power of God. And, and if anything, I've attributed more power to God than when I was a Latter-day Saint, because when I was a Latter-day Saint, I said that God wasn't powerful enough to create unless he was using pre-existing materials. And, and now that I'm a Protestant, I, I believe that God has the power to save me despite my sin. I didn't believe that when I was a Latter-day Saint. Furthermore, I, I didn't believe God could create spirits without the help of a, a female goddess in the same way that we cannot create offspring on earth. And so there were just so many things that God needed to be able to fulfill his work. And ultimately, it all relied on man and what we did. And so I really do feel like the LDS Church is really the one that is denying God's power and denying the truth. And I think these these verses really condemn the LDS Church far more than they condemn those who leave and become Protestant. And I guess the last thing I'll say about that is if embracing Christ alone and acknowledging that his power alone is what saves me and his grace and, and his love, then if that makes me a son of perdition, then so be it. Yeah, because, I mean, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, because, because what matters to me is exalting him, not myself. Good. Good. And, you know, I, I'll just say, you know, I think you did a great job defending yourself, but you can't be a son of perdition um, because if you were, you'd end up in outer darkness, but you're in outer brightness. So 
Checkmate. Oh, that's true. Talk, talk about protecting <laughs> the king, right? Mic, so, mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do want to make kind of a substantive uh, statement on his article. Uh, he he links. I think it's interesting in his article. He when he when he talks about Hebrews six, uh, he links <laughs> not to that that scripture, but to another article that he wrote. I just think it's interesting that within an article, you're linking to a scripture, supposedly, but when somebody clicks on it, it takes you to another article that you wrote rather than to the scripture. Um, but I just want to make a critique of of what he's doing there in terms of asking who the original audience of Hebrews was. Um, the, the context seems to indicate that it's uh, Jewish, uh, either converts or um, Jews who were interested in the Christian message, uh, but had not yet converted. Maybe they were um, in the process of, of studying and learning who were then uh, enticed by the prospect of returning to uh, the, the faith of their, of their uh, forebears in terms of, you know, returning back to Judaism. And so um, to try to apply that to you and say, and, and make, make as if the, uh, rejection in Hebrews is rejecting Joseph Smith and the Mormon church is one, it's a great leap to its eisegesis. It, it doesn't address the, the context of what's going on there. Thoughts on that? I, I think that's really good. Really good, solid point. Matthew thoughts on, on the blogger. Yeah, I agreed with that. Like it's, it's easy for us to take passages out of context from scripture and, I'll be the first to admit that I do that occasionally and I, and I know I need to do better at that. But, um, and then sometimes it's not, it's not wrong to quote a passage as long as you know that what you're using it in the proper context. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like you said, in, in Hebrews six and 10, it's more talking about the redemptive historical progressive revelation that it advanced, you know, over time, he was, the, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, don't go back. You know, don't you, you have a better covenant. Everything is better in the new covenant than the old covenant. Why would you go back? And so it's it's kind of warning them to say to to stay true to the faith and to to not turn to be tempted by the old ways or to be tempted by trying to keep the law to to receive righteousness. So to try to apply that to say to to Michael, I don't really understand because um, in particular in Hebrews ten, um, and I'll admit that I haven't read the article, but just based on the comments you've said, I'll. I'll comment on that. In, in verse 29 of Hebrews 10, it says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So, first of all, if you want to say this is Michael, you would have to show when did he trample underfoot the Son of God? When did he never deny Christ? And second of all, when has he ever profaned the blood of the covenant by which, well, I won't get into that. Um, yeah, when, when have you profaned the blood of the covenant, and when have you outraged the spirit of grace? I mean, if anything, Latter-day Saint doctrine does not teach a spirit of grace. It teaches a spirit of obedience and growing and becoming more like God and submitting yourself to ordinances, et cetera, et cetera, rather than being saved by grace. To, so to turn from that to a gospel where it's completely by grace, I don't see how that outrages the spirit of grace. It just seems contradictory. And going back to Doctrine and Covenants 76... It's starting in verse 35, it says, having denied the Holy Spirit after having received it and having denied the only begotten son of the father, having crucified him unto themselves and put him to an open shame. Well, again, I don't know of any place where Michael would have done that, where he would have been guilty of that. You know, he has not denied Christ. Uh, he has not 
deny the Holy Spirit. He's not sinned against the Holy Spirit. And a lot of biblical scholars think that the, the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit is to say that the works of God are attributed to the devil. That's one view of what, what the unforgivable sin is. And, and he hasn't done that either. So to me, it seems like condemning someone who could possibly, I mean, for all he knows, you could return to the LDS church, right, Michael? So to outright cast you into outer darkness without having real solid evidence for for your being an actual son of perdition, it just seems like, I don't know, it just seems strange because it seems like, as Latter-day Saint, I believe that anybody could be brought back from whatever state they were in, you know? Like, I felt like there was no sin that was too great that somebody couldn't come back to the church. And I think Latter-day Saint leaders are, have been saying that a lot recently. You know, they're trying to urge people to come back to the church, come back to the fold, et cetera, et cetera. So to have such strong words against you and just to basically dust off his feet and say, well, don't listen to anything this guy has to say because he's an apostate and he's going to hell. Well, outer darkness. It's just very strange to me because you don't, I don't, I don't really hear Latter-day Saints talk that way very often. Yeah. And I mean, I remember hearing quotes too, saying that, you know, we'd be able to count on one hand the amount of people that would go to outer darkness. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that quote. I think it was Brigham Young. Um, I had no idea I'd be one of the five, but I mean, that's, that's crazy. So I guess that's me, you guys, Kane, <laughs> and Judas. Yeah. Judas, yep. Oh, man. We can make a really awesome like metal band, you know, the Sons of Perdition. <laughs> uh, but Matthew, you, make, you made some really good points there and, 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 and really made the case for kind of refuting the, the underlying premise behind Boylan's article, which is that the LDS concept of the new and everlasting covenant is the same as the new covenant that's being discussed in the book of Hebrews. And I think that from a historical standpoint, uh, as well as from a doctrinal standpoint in terms of what accretions the LDS new and everlasting covenant has that are not present in the New Testament, uh, I think it's just demonstrable that 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 premise that they're the same thing and therefore Michael has rejected what Hebrews is talking about is just it's demonstrably false. Yeah. I mean, it's just interesting to hear such strong language because you don't really hear Latter-day Saints talk about like, like you hear some evangelicals refer to reprobate in terms of like, you know, people have committed so much sin that they're so far gone that there's no hope for them. So you might as well just give up on them. I've never really heard Latter-day Saints talk like that. You know, they'll always be hopeful. They'll always be like, well, you know, God can, you know, God loves everyone. The gospel is to everyone. So anyone can, can come back to the fold. You know what I mean? I, I, I mean, I kind of already mentioned that, but just, it just, I don't know. That, that seems just very strange to me. Yeah, I think what strikes me the most about all of Robert's articles that he's written about me, and there's several of them, is just how quickly he he does jump into ad hominems in all of them. And it's just like even as a Latter Day Saint, it would have put me off because you know the Book of Mormon says that the spirit of contention is of the devil, and you know when when I read an article and he doesn't even address the topic of the article that he is responding to. And it just immediately goes into attacking me and saying that I'm going to outer darkness and I'm a son of perdition, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard to say that that's not just the spirit of contention talking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. So guys, we've been going for right about three hours. Um, we got about 15 minutes left in the, in the meeting. And I know, you know, we're getting to the point at, of the, of the night where um, Brianna is going to start maybe sending out her feline fatales after us. So we better move on to Ross Anderson's question. And this will be the final question of, of the episode. Um, but I think he asks a good one. He says, 
he asks, what would it look like to rebuild this three-legged stool for someone who has left Mormonism? Man, that is such a good question. And, and I definitely want you guys' opinion on this as well. So maybe let's just take one, one stool at a time or one leg. And I think the first one to talk about is social, social conversion. Um, I think one of the hardest things for me coming out of Mormonism and, and going to church was that I was all alone. I left all my friends and I was going to church and I just felt, I just felt dumb and, and like I was, you know, I'm the only person that I know at church and I'm just kind of sitting there by myself. And so that was, that was really hard for me. And I think what, what really helped was just when I introduced myself to the pastor and he just went so far out of his way to just, you know, look for me every Sunday and come and talk to me and, and make a point of making me feel important and loved at church. So I think just having that, having that framework, uh, you know, it was so important to me, just those first few friends that I made at church, you know, made all the difference in the world. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think most Latter-day Saints, when they, when they're transitioning out of the church, it's a very lonely process. Excuse me. And, I didn't really have anybody to connect to because I was in New York and, you know, I didn't really know anybody here to begin with. And looking back, I really wish I had like at least one or two friends who were Christian, who were just solid Christians that I could ask questions to, that I could, you know, share my experiences with to bounce ideas off of them. But I didn't. So I was mostly just spending all my time reading books. And I really think that having at least one solid friend that can kind of help you out with questions or help you to transition into a Christian church is really important. And not only that is to find a, a church that is solid that you can connect with, you know, in, in a fellowship sense, because I, I think all three aspects of these legs need to be focused on Christ. You know, in, in the Latter-day Saint church, it was kind of like, I think they, they do focus, you know, they, they say a lot about focusing on Jesus, but I think in a sense, um, it's kind of, it doesn't always end up that way. You know, a lot of it ends up being tied to, the leadership or, or other things we've discussed. So when you're focusing on Christianity and you're, and you're, you're transitioning into, into the Christian faith, you really need to have all things focused on Jesus. So when we're talking about the social aspect, fellowshipping with others, not just to make friends or not just to feel like you belong somewhere, but to, to feel like you're all focusing on the cross to where you're all focusing on Jesus. And that's where you're, you're really going to feel like, okay, I'm with others. We're all struggling. We all have different ideas. We have different struggles, we have different problems in our lives, but we're all coming here to bow at the cross. And one of my favorite quotes from, uh, I think it's Justin Peters, he says that the, the ground at the foot of the cross is even, meaning there's no one better than the other. We're all reliant entirely on the, the mercy of Christ. And so having that social aspect to talk to people and fellowship and get support that way, that's, that's vitally important to the life of a Christian. And I, I wish I had found a solid church earlier because I, I, I felt like leaving the church was a divorce, you know, like I was being divorced and I didn't want to jump into another church too soon, which I think was still an okay idea, but I waited a little too long. I waited like a year of just studying the Bible kind of by myself and trying to figure out, okay, you know, doctrinally, which church lines up with how I understand scripture. But in that time, it was really hard. You know, I, I was like just going to, to my lab at school, coming home and just reading all day. So I really... And then when I started going to a church and I felt that connection, I was like, man, this is what I've been missing this whole time. And like, I wish I'd just done this earlier. So yeah, it's very important. Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to touch on this as well. And I'm going to try to keep it brief. And you guys know that that's uh, 
that's probably impossible, but um, so I think for, I, I've seen, I've seen Mormons kind of struggle who leave uh, and, and, and try to embrace Christianity kind of struggle with the feeling that they, they maybe aren't viewed by Christians as reliable in terms of candid, being candidates for ministry or candidates for uh, teaching within the church. Um, and, and I understand that tension um, because there are such large doctrinal differences. Um, so what I would stress in that in those situations for the Latter-day Saint who's making the transition is to be patient and understanding that, that there is a tension there, right? The, that there's going to be an expectation that if you want to jump into teaching, um, there's going to be the expectation that you are teaching solid biblical doctrine uh, and not mixing in, uh, you know, Mormonism. And so there, there's that tension. What I would also stress to uh, Christians is that, you know, the history of the church shows many people who have made transitions from faiths that would be considered heretical. Uh, you know, for example, Augustine coming from Manichaeism uh, into Christianity and and how important he is to the history of the church. And so it's, it's important that uh, on both sides, there be patience. And so for me personally, when I made the transition, um, one, I, I, met some really good friends, like the church that we went to was uh, very open and welcoming. Uh, and I remember going and I hadn't been there very long. And, and of course, you know, I'm six foot seven. So people get to know me pretty quickly. I, I can't hide in a crowd. Um, so they get to know who I am uh, pretty quickly. But I remember, you know, after just a few weeks, uh, getting to know uh, a guy named Jason and man, every week that I would go, he was just so excited to see me. And, you know, would come over and talk to me and, uh, you know, give me a hug and just really excited to see me. And, and, and that, you know, friendship and relationship has, has continued. We've played softball together over the years. And, uh, he just texted me this morning, uh, to tell me that he'd listened to, you know, my episodes of the podcast and, and, um, you know, that, that, uh, like you, you guys were saying, you need a good friend and that that's, uh, that's there. So, um, but also as I made the transition, um, you know, I started going to Bible study um, and, and initially I just sat and listened, you know, and I think that's important for, for Latter-day Saints. You know, there's some, uh, some cautionary tales in terms of people who try to rush into ministry and uh, either uh, do harm because they're still really angry or do harm because they're teaching false doctrine. Um, and so I think there, there has to be patience and understanding that there, that there is a period of time where um, you learn and you grow as a Christian uh, before you can jump in. And I know that can, that can sound um, off-putting to some Latter-day Saints because they might think, Hey, I, you know, I've been a Christian my whole life. And I believe me, I get that. I get that. But uh, I do think it's important to get grounded in, in biblical doctrine and understanding because there are, there are major differences. And, and even if you think you understand them, you probably, you probably don't. That's, that was my experience. And so um, yeah, from a social leg standpoint that's what i would say and i think that that ties in also with the doctrinal aspect just being grounded in the word because like you said i think i think like you said you you grow up with the gospels you know i've heard the parables i've heard this i know but but when you really when you really get into a really solid bible study session with christians who have been christians their whole lives and you know they've studied from solid preachers it's it's like night and day you know i i never heard of expository preaching or expository studying 
where you go verse by verse through a book or a chapter or whatever, and you read a commentary with it, or you hear a preacher go through it, and they just open up things from the original languages. And it's just like, you're learning all kinds of things you never knew before, where it's like in, as a Sunday school attendant or teacher, the manual would say, well, read a few passages here, ask people what they think, move on, you know, go two chapters later, mm-hmm. read this verse. And it's like, it could be a totally different context or, a, you know, you could be talking about something totally else different. And when you're jumping around like that, you can't, you're not, it's like you're, you're sipping at the fountain. You're not drinking deeply. You're just taking little, little, tiny sips of it so yeah i think that's really important doctrinally to just realize to be humble and and, and it's hard because you like you said you feel this passion you, you want to witness to mormons you want to show them the gospel of grace it's it's you know with calvinists it's kind of like cage stage calvinism you know uh the basically it's the idea that you just need to keep them in the cage at the beginning because they can get very you know very outspoken they can almost turn violent sometimes and it's like you just need to relax and just be grounded in your beliefs and not you know, immediately jump out the gate and attack. And I don't think that that energy is necessarily bad, you know, that that vigor and that enthusiasm. I think you can keep that, but it needs to be grounded. It needs to be humble. And um, that's something that we always have to work on. And like I said earlier, I struggle being gracious sometimes, and I really need help with that, being gracious when I'm witness to Latter-day Saints. And I think that's a, that's a doctrinal thing and a social thing that I'm still working through. And these pains can take years. They can take years to get through. So going too fast is is not a good idea. Yeah, and, and it's funny that you mentioned cage stage Calvinism because I've, I've honestly said a couple of times to people that I believe that cage stage ex-Mormonism is a real thing. You know, people come out and, and they just, there's these feelings of bitterness and anger that almost everybody experiences at least for some time when they come out, you know, feelings of betrayal. And, and so they're just, it's it's hard for them to interact in a productive, positive way with other Latter Day Saints, and and I agree with Paul, you know, saying that there's it's a mistake to rush into ministry too soon. And I mean, even I think back on a lot of the interactions I had with my family, just trying to explain to them what I why I had left, and it just you know it none of it really was was that positive. And there's a part of me that wishes I'd waited. Until I really, you know, it takes a long time to deconstruct that and to be able to articulate it to the point where, you know, like compared to now, you know, I, I wish that I could have had that first chance now knowing what I do at this point. So I think that's just a common mistake. But I was going to say, too, um, kind of going back to the social aspect, you know, if if you're a Christian and you ever come across somebody who's left the Mormon church in your congregation, you need to view that person as somebody who needs to be discipled immediately um, because there's, there's a lot of, they're going to need friends. They're going to need to know how the culture works um, at your church. And, and then, yeah, doctrinal issues are so important for ex Mormons because, you know, not only do we need to learn Christian doctrine, but we need to unlearn Mormonism. And, and that's been a thing that I've continually struggled with where it's like, I'm, I'll think of some concept. I'm like, wait, is, is this uh is this real or is, is this from Mormonism? And so it's just an ongoing thing for a long time. And so it's just so important to, to stay in the Bible. But I think uh, groups, groups online are also can be a real, a real big source of strength, you know, like the group ex Mormon Christians. I, I see that as an opportunity for people to talk about some of the, the problems that are still going on in their lives and get some counsel or, or learn about some doctrinal, you get some doctrinal instructions. So yeah, Facebook can be a, a real strength as well if somebody hasn't found a church yet. 
And I've said in the past over and over again, if you're trying to find a relationship with Jesus, stay away from the ex-Mormon subreddit <laughs> because that place is very toxic. Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, with regards to, um, with regards to the spiritual conversion, how you would rebuild that, um, for someone who's left the LDS faith, I, I would say to dig into the word, um, not, not necessarily from a doctrinal standpoint, but just from allowing the word to, um, allowing the word to wash over you, allowing the word to convict you, allowing yourself to really dig in as, as, as Matthew, you were talking about before, um, read whole books of scripture in the Bible. Um, you, you may have done that like I did on my mission where I decided I was going to read straight through. Uh, right. But when you have that kind of goal, uh, ahead of yourself, um, maybe you're like me and you, you just kind of were focused on the page count each day or the chapter count that you were trying to accomplish so that you get through, you could get through the whole thing in a certain amount of time. And you weren't as focused on what did, you know, what is, what is the message here that God is conveying, uh, through the scriptures. And so I would say, you know, dig into the word, um, for the word to, uh, for the Holy spirit to get, uh, into your life and, and, and convict you of, of, um, sin that may be remaining in your life. And, and also, uh, just be able to teach you and enlighten you, uh, on things that you didn't see before or didn't understand before. And along with that is prayer. We just, we just always constantly need prayer and relying on God to help us understand because trying to get rid of those LDS gospels or sorry, LDS glasses, you know, where we, we viewed scripture from, Oh, this passage is talking about baptism for the dead. This one's talking about Jesus ordaining the apostles. You both spoken about how it just takes time to just deconstruct everything, but it really, it really is difficult. It's, I remember just buying book after book after book after commentary left and right. Cause I just was like trying to figure it all out. It's like, okay, I can keep this, throw this away, take this, modify it a little bit, tweak it. It's just, it's really difficult and it's just going to take a lot of patience and, and prayer and trust in the Lord that he's going to get you through it. Yeah, I don't really have have anything to add to that. I mean, you guys, I agree with everything you said. Um, I think the the only cherry on top I might throw on there is just to uh, to trust God completely. You know, when when sin comes creeping into your life, which it inevitably will, uh, make it a point not to think, "Oh no, I'm I'm unworthy now. What do I need to to do to get back into God's graces?" But instead, think God's grace is stronger than this you know, God's got me covered. And I think that can just be another way to, uh, to glorify God in, in your eyes and, and understand the, uh, the strength of his love and of his grace. Amen. Amen. All right. That's a wrap on that episode. Great job, guys. I think we got some really good content tonight. Yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. That was a lot of fun. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you please visit the Outer Brightness podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. 
Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, fireflies. Light. I am the way and the truth